Eternal God, we thank you so much. God, as we just finished reflecting on your goodness, you are the God of our many tears. You are the great deliverer. God, just a generation ago, moments like today were not even possible. And we honor you, Lord, because of your faithfulness. Thank you. Thank you for being present. Thank you for being strong. Thank you, Lord, that we could have easily drifted away believing that you weren't even here, that you didn't even exist. But through the trials and through the struggles of the Middle Passage, Lord, the enslavement of our ancestors through Jim Crow and through all the civil rights era, God, you, you proved yourself faithful. And God, what the enemy meant for evil, God, you meant it for our good. We thank you for that. And you did it, Lord, because you knew the narrative that you were creating. And I thank you, Lord, that one church has an opportunity to participate in that. That we can look at people who hate justice. And we can look at the systems, Lord, that are at play and we can claim that our God is bigger than that. So, God, we will trust in you as we just finish singing until the day that we die. But now, God, as we open your word, Lord, we pray that you give us hope. Hope for when the days grow dim, when our feet, our hands, and our backs grow tired, God, that we will not bend to the will of the enemy, Lord, but we will lift our heads up to you. And, Lord, that you will give us the strength to continue to march on. It's in your holy name that we do pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are in, I guess, now the fourth week of the Hope Quotient series. And so um, today's topic is refocus on the future. And so if you have your Bibles, open it up to the uh, gospel according to John chapter 4. And I'm just going to read three quick verses, verses 13, 14, and 15. And um, let's see what the Lord has to say about refocusing on the future. Then, of course, as always, it'll be available for you on the screen. This is what you'll find. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Amen. It's morning, and the sun is slowly rising over the landscape, and there's a growing chatter of a crowd gathering outside in the courtyard. She rises from her bed and draws back the curtain slightly, just enough to get a peek at the morning commotion. 
Her heart leaps internally as she sees women that she grew up with, former classmates and even family members. And she smiles. And as quickly as her facial muscles form the curve of her lips, a tear streams down her face at the same time. She then releases the curtain, turns her head, and glances at him lying in the bed. He's still asleep. And at this moment, she experiences a whirlwind of emotions. Love, heartbreak, pain, joy, guilt. She's torn for, in order to be out there, he can't be in here. And in order for her to have them, she can't have him. Her day starts later than most, so she heads to the kitchen to prepare breakfast for her and her love. He clears his plate, and like clockwork, someone shouts his name from the same courtyard where the women once gathered. This time it's the guys waiting for him so that they can go off to work together. Once more, after they say their goodbyes, he, he exits, and once again she stares out the window, this time watching the men greet each other. It's a privilege and an honor that she doesn't have. And once more, the tears flow. So she spends a little bit of time cleaning, really just passing the time because she has to wait until the courtyard fills once more before she can exit her own home. And so a little bit of time passes and it slowly grows quiet, but then it gets loud again as the women have now come back from their destination and they've gathered in the courtyard once more saying their goodbyes before they go back to their separate homes. And once the courtyard grows silent and quiet again, that's her cue that she can now exit the house. She gets dressed, she grabs her pot, she cautiously opens the door, begins her daily trek to the well in the heat of the day all by herself. And of course, it's daytime, so she encounters people as they proceed, as she proceeds, and neither her nor them have the courage to look one another in the eye. So she walks, pot on head, eyes to the ground, heart in two pieces. Isolated on the road, headed to the well, and I'm sure thoughts ran through her mind. I'm quite sure as a young girl, she didn't envision that this would be her life. She didn't think that as an adult, she would be all by herself. She thought she'd be just like one of the girls. She'd be married. She'd be Susie Homemaker. For nobody grows up with the aspirations of being an outcast. I wonder if anybody else has ever experienced that pain. I wonder if there's anybody in here who's ever woke up and said to themselves, I do not know how I got here. Well, this wasn't my plan of life. This isn't what I thought that I would be doing at this time. This isn't what I expected when I was a child, when I grew up. I didn't think that my life would look like this. There's an old book by Andy Stanley called The Principle of the Path, and he makes this brilliant observation. He says this. He says, um, when you get lost, you never know that you're lost until you're actually lost. For there's no sign or no line that lets you know when you are found and when you are lost. All you know is that once you arrive somewhere that you are unfamiliar with, you recognize that you are officially lost where you were. Wouldn't it be awesome in life if we could understand or if we have that notification, maybe your phone would go off and let you know, now you are lost. 
you now are not where you are supposed to be. You have officially drifted off the line for where you hope that you would be in your life at this time, in this season. You are heading toward being lost. It wasn't this for her. Nobody informed her. Nobody, nobody helped to lead her back. She just found herself in a lost position. I'm sure that those are people who's like that. A couple of weeks ago, um, I was down at our, our, form, our future location at 1212 South 4th Street, and I, was, uh, I did a quick run for some of the contractors and came back, and I saw a couple of officers standing over a guy as he seated on the concrete. And when I got around and I saw his face, it was a guy that I know is actually one of the former residents of New Legacy. And if you do not know what New Legacy is, it is a reentry home uh, and they are uh, responsible for the work that's taking place at our building. The guy that I saw there was one of the guys who was working for us at one point in time, but he had recently experienced a relapse about his addiction pretty bad. So I asked the cop if it was okay, and I sat down next to the guy. His name is Dalton, and I looked at Dalton in his face, and I said, Dalton, what happened? And as soon as I asked that question with tears in his eyes, he simply shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't know. And I believe him because I seen him just a few weeks before. And I saw the effort that he was making to get his life back in order. But now that I looked at Dalton in his face, Dalton is at a place where he does not know how he wound up there. Because as he came out of prison, he put himself in a place where he would be successful and get back on the right track to see his children and to lead the life that he was hoping for. I doubt that when Dalton came back into society, his goal was not to find himself once more battling addiction. But I sat next to Dalton with tears in his eyes, not able to know. And all he kept saying is, Pastor, I'm sorry. And I said, Dalton, you have nothing to apologize for, man. I want you to know that I love you because I understand. This is what the Samaritan woman is experiencing. As she's heading to the well, I'm sure all of these thoughts are running through her mind and she's trying to figure out. But as she's walking there from a distance, she notices someone sitting by the well. And as she gets closer, she sees that it is a Jewish man. Should she continue? And keep in mind that this is a Samaritan woman. And Samaritans are not socially acceptable to Jews. But as she gets a little bit closer, she can also observe that not only is he a Jewish man, but he happens to be a Jewish rabbi. Well, now that's even more because not only now is she not socially acceptable to a Jew, but now to a Jewish rabbi. Jewish rabbis don't even talk to women that they don't know in public places. So she's trying to figure out what do I do with myself? I, I've already dealing with the ostracization, the marginalization from my own people. I'm walking to the world in the middle of the day by myself, trying to just do enough to get by in my life. I don't know how I wound up here. And now I've got to deal with the judgment of this Jewish rabbi as he sits by the well. For some reason, she can't escape rejection. It seems to find her every time she gets there. And this is the experiences that she has in her life. This is her constant. There's nothing that she can find, no acceptance anywhere, not in her community, in her family, not even here at the well. And so, they begin to have a conversation, and she sits there, and she goes, and the Jewish rabbi asks a question that blew her mind. Will you give me 
a drink. Man, we can sit there just for the rest of our time today. Because keep in mind, again, that this is a Jewish rabbi and a Samaritan woman. She's not socially acceptable. She is marginalized. She has been rejected by everybody in her life. Yet this Jewish rabbi, who is breaking protocol by speaking to this woman, looks at her face and says, give me a drink. Yeah, this is, this is a question, man, that really changed a number. It gives us a lot of complexities that she's got to deal with. Listen, Jesus asking this woman for a drink is the equivalent, check this out, of President Trump in Mexico asking a Mexican to give him a ride to Texas. That's about how deep this question was. This does not make sense in any language. Jesus breaks the social order because one of the things that Jesus does and one of the reasons why I love him so well is when Jesus was speaking to this woman he was not speaking to the brokenness that was inside of her he was speaking to the person that Jesus believed that she could become yeah as we're talking about refocusing on the future, one of the principles that we've got to grab in our lives is the person that Jesus sees when he speaks to you is not the person that you hurt for, not the person who weeps at night because you feel lost or feel like you can't make it or you struggle with depression, anxiety, whatever it may be. The, the person that Jesus sees is not that person. Jesus sees the you that he always hoped that you would become. Man, that's a lesson. That's a lesson, man, for all of us. That's a lesson for all of us. I love it. Just a few weeks ago, Pastor Matt was here, and he had us recite a simple litany, and our, our response was simply this, created in the image of God. Yeah, when Jesus speaks to you, he does not speak to the sin in your life. He speaks to the fact that you were created in the image of God. Jesus asking for a drink. It throws her off. And notice her response. She says, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How are you asking me for something to drink? Here's a better translation. Man, have you lost your mind? What are you thinking of asking me for something to drink? This is one of those occasions, man, if, if the Pharisees were around, they would swear that Jesus was the worst of sinners. Because as a religious man, as a religious leader, a religious leader should isolate themselves, separate themselves from sinners to make sure that he keeps himself purified. But here's one lesson that Jesus teaches us in this moment is that it is not our goal to separate ourselves from sinners. It is our goal to separate ourselves from sin. That's a big difference there. That's the definition of holiness. Holiness is not separating ourselves from sinners because how can you separate from yourself? It is not separating ourselves from sinners. It is separating ourselves from sin. And so Jesus, what I love about Jesus, Jesus chooses not to avoid us. He chooses to engage us. While we were still in our sin, Jesus came, right? Right, yeah. He came not to avoid, but to engage us where we are. That's why the psalmist says that he is a very present help. In the time of trouble, Jesus does not avoid but I want you to notice something, though, in the conversation. That Jesus is speaking to the woman, give me something to drink. Something happens. They have this dialogue, and Jesus begins to share with her that he knows her story. He's trying to give her a drink. He's trying to, to heal her. He's trying to help her out. But one of the first things that he does is he lets her know 
or he reaches her needs by letting her know how she's needed. But in order to let her know that she's needed, he's got to address the elephant in the room or at the well that's keeping them from making the connection. So in order for her to refocus for her future, in order for her to be what he created her to be, Jesus had to address what was there. So he says to her, you've had five husbands and the man that you are with now isn't your husband. Yeah, this is, this is what led to her journey. This is what she was experiencing as she's looking out the window, peering in the courtyard at her friends and family members. This is what she was dealing with as she left her, her house by herself in the middle of the day with a blazing hot sun on her back and she made her way to the well by herself. This is what she was dealing with. The weight of the fact that she's had this experience and there's some, some, some lessons here that you know, Jewish law also talks about that you can't have no more than three husbands and we can look at it like that. Jesus really spends a whole lot of time talking about the so the fact that she had five husbands she had four too many there's a lot that we can lay upon this thing but Jesus sees who she is and I believe that Jesus sees that that is not who she wants to become so he addresses what is there her sin that's, that's like the, the worst word in the world today Matter of fact, man, listen, I could probably on this stage, I could probably see a bunch of four-letter words and it would sound a whole lot better to some of our ears than sin. We don't like to talk about sin. We like to give it other names. We have nicknames for sin. Uh, we had a moral failure. Um, we had an ethical eruption. Some type of moral dilemma. Uh, we made a mistake. Yeah, oops, I did that again. Uh, we don't like to talk about sin. We just kind of like to you know, make light of it because, you know, it's really not all that big of a deal. Well, here's how big of a deal that sin is, in case you didn't know, and you can try to level it off at whatever place you think. It does not matter if you're a liar or a murderer. Sin is sin according to scripture. Here's how bad sin is. Sin is so bad that the creator of the earth put himself in human flesh and came down here to die so that sin would not wipe us out. Sin is a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal. Sin is the only thing that can separate humanity from God. Did you know that? The only thing that can separate humanity from God. Matter of fact, he comes and then Paul tells us that nothing can separate us from God because the thing that I mentioned earlier that Jesus came to be a sin, be a fence, or be a bridge between us and God because sin separated us from him. Sin is a pretty big deal. It's not a moral failure, ethical dilemma, ethical eruption. It's none of those things. Sin is exactly what it is. And one of the things that Jesus speaks to her in order to give her what she needs so that she can move in the fashion, head in the direction that he created her to be, Jesus had to let her know that I see your sin. But notice in the conversation that Jesus, he points out her sin, where it is, and Jesus does not say, now get away from me. Jesus does not say, depart from me, sinner. As a matter of fact, the only time that you see that language from Jesus in the scriptures is when he deals with church people. But for this lady whom is battling shame and battling the, the trial, the struggle of whatever it is in her life, this lady battling her sin addiction, Jesus says to her, give me a drink. I know that you've had five husbands and I know that you've got one who's not yours right now, but I want you to know that I want you. I think we need to know that no matter where we are, 
The story will never change. God wants us. He wants us as we are. He wants us right now. And he will love us until we become who he created us to be. So Jesus speaks to her. He knows her story. He understands why her walls are, why she's guarded. And rather than Jesus tearing down the walls of her heart, he gives her the tools to set herself free. So Jesus doesn't respond to her language, her body language, her shame and guilt. He responds to his hope in her. And so as they're talking, Jesus has pointed this out and she misses it. And so Jesus has to further explain, which is what we get in verse 13. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This woman had been searching her entire adult life, young adult life, for something that would fill the desires of her heart and yet she instead became a slave to sin and shame. So Jesus is speaking to that internal thirst. And that's what he wants to do for you. He wants to speak to your internal thirst, the thing that is warring for your heart. And we all got something, right? right. Here, here's another reason why it's kind of hard to talk about sin with church folk, because we see sin on scales. And we think that certain scales are certain sins are greater than the other. But that's because we get caught up in behavior. You, you think sin is behavior. And for that, your theology is wrong. Sin isn't behavior. The doctrine of sin tells us that sin is a disposition. So if you can look at somebody, you can think that they are less than you because they don't sin like you do. That disposition there makes you equal with sin. Sin is a disposition. So looking at the behavior, the behavior doesn't mean anything. It's the disposition. This is what the, the, the psalmist is talking about when he says that in my mother's womb, I was shaped in iniquity. It is a disposition. It's a part of who you are. You couldn't be, a, be any less of a sinner if you tried with all your heart. Monks tried it. They tried to separate themselves from culture and from people. People have isolated and separated themselves since the beginning of time. There is nothing that you can do. For the moment that you was born, you exited your mother's womb. You were a sinner and you will always be a sinner until the day we reach glory. That's who we are. That's a part of who we are. That's what Jesus is redeeming us from. So Jesus trying to respond to that internal thirst. She still didn't get it. So the woman says, and I've never seen this before as many times as I've read this scripture. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I've never seen that before. I mean, I've read that scripture, but I've never seen it like that. Check this out. Listen to the story again. She exits her house in sin and shame and guilt all by herself, heading to the world in the middle of the day by herself, all alone, uh, separated from her community and her family. She gets to the world, meets this Jewish rabbi. This Jewish rabbi tells her, I'm going to give you water that will never make you thirsty again. I'm going to fulfill every need that you have in your heart. I'm going to set you free. And she says, sir, give me that water so that I don't have to come here again. Here's what she said. Here's what she said, really. Um, sir, give me this water so that I don't have to make this long haul past the people looking at me. Yeah. 
give me this water so that my family members will no longer look down on me. Give me this water so that I don't have to suffer from the ill effects of divorce and all the guilt and shame that I have. Give me this water so that I can mend my broken relationships and so that I can be free from this pain in my heart. And you know what? She still missed it. Because Jesus wasn't trying to give her the tools so that she could come to the well again. He was trying to give her the tools to where she could stand proudly in front of the people who rejected her. That she could go in the courtyard in the mornings and she could gather with the women. That she could walk in the cool of the day with everyone else. That she could reunite with her friends and her family members. He wasn't trying to give her water so she could have endless water at home. He was trying to give her water so she could have endless confidence and hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus, Jesus speaks. Check out how, this is how he sets her free. He lets her know, I know who you are and I know what you've been doing. And this is what I love about the story. She talks a little bit more. They have a little bit more of a conversation. And all of a sudden, check this out. This lady who left her home by herself in the middle of the day in shame and guilt went back into the town and every person that she couldn't speak to while she left the town, she told about Jesus as she headed back into the town. And everybody who cut their eyes at her, everybody who left her in the house by herself, all of those people, and listened to her testimony. You gotta love this. You gotta love this. Her testimony was this. Come meet a man who told me everything that I've ever done. Yeah. Come meet a man who knows my sexual history. Come, come meet a man who knows about the mistakes, the sins in my life. Come meet a man, check this out, who knows me yet he still chooses me. Yeah. And what's his name? And his name is Jesus. Yeah. His name is Jesus. And this message is for anybody in here. In case you did not know it, our God is not a blind God. He is an all-knowing. He is an all-seeing God. And he sees you. He knows you right where you are, what you've been through, what you've experienced, the pain, the sin of your life. And our God, rather than turning his back on us, he presses closer to us because he wants you right where you are, right how you are. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never give up on you. He wants you for who you are. And I, I tell people this all the time. Listen, um, Jesus does not love you in spite of you. He just loves you. He's, he's not trying to pick out parts of you to, to determine what parts is lovable. He understands who you are. He created you. That's why, man, we was here last night, had a great time having a family values dinner, talking about the values of our church. And one of our values is simply this. It's love recklessly. Yeah, listen to that phrase, love recklessly, which basically means, man, we don't care what it looks like. And we don't care who you are. We don't care where you're from. We don't care about the color of your skin. We don't care about your sexual orientation. We don't care about your socioeconomic status. None of that matters. The only thing we want to know is how can we love you? How can we speak to you? How can we have a relationship with you? How can we have fellowship with you? Because it is not my job or anybody else's job to judge who you are, what you've gone through. My job is to show you Jesus. And my Jesus loves humanity unconditionally. And in order to refocus for the future that Jesus is calling us to, we got to be willing to give our sin over to him. Drop our bags off at the cross and be freed enough 
to share his goodness with the world. His sister, man, just a few verses ago was marginalized, but found freedom by believing and having faith in her Savior, and it changed her days. And I'm done. You want to know what happened? She went into town, and the same people who didn't like her after she shared, they came to meet Jesus. And this nation of heathens, of socially unacceptable Samarians, came to faith in Jesus Christ because she gave her sin over to him. The question for all of us, are we willing to give up ours? Are we willing to go to the cross and to say, God, this is who I am.